And the practice of mindfulness is very comprehensive. It's a very wide meditative practice. There are many different forms of meditation, and the Buddha's form of meditation is satipatthana, is what we translate as mindfulness, was a very particular style. In some way, it's a practice of training ourselves, reminding ourselves to be more in the here and now. It's something that is a practice. It's something that doesn't necessarily for all of us happen so naturally. We have a lot of things to do and places to be and people we'd like to become and uh, people we'd like to not become and people we'd like to meet and people we'd like to get away from and situations and experiences we want to change or would love to stick around. So we have a lot of preferences. Now, mindfulness kind of asks the question, well, what is, it, what is it here? What is here? And how is it to be here? What's the effect of that? You know, the emotional and physical body and the effect of the mind. You know, what's the quality as we did in this practice tonight? What's the attitude or the quality of the awareness? So what's here? How, how is it to be here? And then what's needed to respond in a way that allows for more flexibility and creativity with how we move through our day-to-day lives. We don't have to get stuck in the same reflexive patterns that we always do out of kind of these unconscious habits. And last time we talked about the science of the brain and how we're kind of working against the reptilian and mammalian brains, the earlier adaptations of the human brain that really have just two goals, get pleasure, avoid pain. That's the, the dynamic of the, the brain. But then we have this very strategic, they call it the executive manager, we have this very rational, problem-solving, organized brain that oftentimes is also just trying to get pleasure and avoid pain, but in a very strategic Uh, nuanced and often misguided and unnoticed fashion. And the problem that the Buddha saw is that this isn't necessarily a problem other than that life itself doesn't sign us up for pleasure all the time. There's no permanence of, there's no lasting satisfaction you know, in this existence. And so the mind really wants to find some ground. It really wants to find some certainty. It wants to know, what is it, what should I expect tomorrow when I have this job interview? So it worries endlessly about all the possibilities of how, you know, I need to be prepared or I need to expect the worst. It gets in, caught in this black and white thinking and discursive thinking, rumination, worry, and all of this stuff. So through mindfulness, we develop the ability to monitor our present experience, to observe and to look into the mind, our emotions and sensations, to see how they influence 
and perpetuate themselves, how thinking can cycle out of control, how it then leads to how I communicate and how I interact and act in the world. It allows us the opportunity for radical responsibility. Responsibility is the ability to respond. So by knowing or seeing clearly what is happening in the mind, in the body, in the present, uh, when we get that information that mindfulness gives us, that objective information, it allows us an opportunity to respond not based on pure habit and reflex, not automatically, but it gives us a little bit of a space. And it helps us to develop these three skills, which we touched on, which I want to build on tonight. Tonight I want to talk on the topic of insight meditation or mindfulness of the three marks will be the topic. So the three skills that come about, and this isn't canonical, meaning the Buddha didn't necessarily come out and say these are the three things that you develop. It's kind of uh, something that I borrowed from a guy named Shinzen Young and that I really like is a to frame up what mindfulness helps us to develop because it can sometimes feel like, well, why, why should I be present? <laughs> you know, we kind of get in a battle. You notice the loyalty we have sometimes to the mind during meditation. It's like, well, yeah, I, I know, but there's this really important thing that I'm thinking about. And why do I just always ignore my mind? Or how do I deal with this present And so one of the first things we really work on is we work on developing concentration, this ability to sustain our attention with what I call the home base, which is an anchor or something that's present that's usually in the uh, embodied awareness. So your breath, sound, the feeling of your butt in the chair, anything that you can kind of come to that's in the beginning not thinking. You're almost practicing pulling the attention gently and re- repeatedly from the thinking mind into something that something else breath sound body by definition this is the ability to focus on what you consider to be relevant at a given time and this helps you to start to break our addiction to the thinking and to be able to have the choice It can sometimes feel like what we're trying to do is to get rid of the mind, to completely, like I said in the beginning, to pick up all the stress and to walk it outside and then it's going to stay there forever. We want to have that intention to to put it aside because we want to have that ability to set a boundary with the thinking mind. Like in any healthy relationship, you want to have that ability. It doesn't mean that you don't have relationships. It means that you want to first be able to know how to get some space away from the thing. You want to have a sense of groundedness, stability. And it helps to develop, you know, breaking the addiction and thinking about an objective vantage point. Because if you're over here, right, and I'm right here and I'm grounded, I'm with my breath, that's my main point of focus, and you're right here, I can see you a little bit better if you're a little bit further away and then the mind you know and then bam right back into the thought and down the road for two three five ten twenty thirty minutes in the meditation 
And maybe, you know, we get a little bit of time to recognize, oh, okay, that's where I'm at, and come back. And each time we practice that skill of coming back, we're practicing that ability to sustain and connect our attention with something that we consider to be relevant. That's an important thing. And within doing that, it allows, because if I'm not so overridden by all of the mind's worries and obsessions, I usually feel and experience a little bit of relief. For some of us, I want to be realistic in the beginning. You may have several periods of meditation that are very restless and very agitating. And the aim is not to feel better in mindfulness. The aim is to become more aware of how we unconsciously create and perpetuate stress. And so sometimes there's the discomfort of sitting with, and this is the equanimity, sitting with your experience, which is another skill, without pushing or pulling. And there will be some pushing and pulling. There will be some, I want to fix it or change it, or if I could just get my mind to quiet down, then I could meditate. <laughs> right? But part, a huge part of the practice is, can I be here with the mind that is distracted and restless and agitated? And developing that equanimity or that balance or that, uh, in the beginning, almost just distress tolerance to sit with what ordinarily we don't want to sit with. So we move to change it. And then the development of what I want to build on tonight, which is the skill of observation. Observation is then becoming aware of, tracking and monitoring your present experience without judgment. Uh, The development of what and we'll talk about this, what they call sensory clarity. Sensory clarity means simply the practice we did tonight. Where is my attention? Is it on a thought, a sound, a smell, a taste, a feeling? And you'll notice that it's really hard because the attention jumps around a whole lot. So (laughs) you may have heard the helicopter and listened to it for a second, then you're like, sound. And then you're like, oh, man, I just noticed the sound. And then you're like, oh, now I'm thinking. Okay, thinking. But I'm still thinking, thinking. I'm still thinking, thinking. How do I, I'm noting, I'm thinking. How do I, and then you're, you know, thinking more and thinking more. So, you know, observation is, is, and this is not canonical, but how I teach it in this noting practice is simply becoming aware by, it's like a spot check. So you're sitting, you're breathing, you're kind of just relaxing, you're trying to develop a little bit of, okay, I'm here. I'm here enough. I have like a C average of being here. We're never going to be here great, but I'm, most, I'm pretty much here. And then from time to time, checking in and observing where the attention goes. Okay, that was a sound. My breath. My body. Now I'm thinking about something. Okay, that's a thought. Cool, notice that. It's like this kind of checking in over time to track and to monitor, to become more aware and develop more clarity into what the mind or what the attention's up to. What is it up to? Without judgment, most important part. So mindfulness has this observational quality and it also has an investigative quality. 
the difference of the Buddha's offering of satipatthana or mindfulness from the other meditative practices of the day in ancient India was that his practice was aimed at developing insight into the nature of stress and suffering in the mind and how to untangle out of oftentimes misunderstandings or the perceptions that the mind creates or associations, just how the mind in its attempt to find pleasure and avoid pain often creates more pain. And so we want to develop insight. And so there, were this, there was this emphasis on investigating the nature of our experience. And this is where you get dharma. Dharma means the nature of experience. So this is the receptive quality of mindfulness. Mindfulness just receives whatever it becomes aware of. There's no judgment or opinion. It receives first. So it's like a good listener. You know when you've been with someone that's just really good at listening? They don't, they're not with their objective yet. They're not trying to investigate or analyze you yet. In the beginning, they're just really willing to listen and to get the full picture, all of the information. Mindfulness has this period of receptivity that's important in developing that, uh, yeah, the allowing of to become aware of where your attention is without judging it and staying there for a second. Uh, This is the non-interfering quality. So we're not trying to change or fix or control. We're hoping to become aware of what's happening. And this allows for something very important, which in Zen Buddhism they call the beginner's mind. So if I'm listening to you, right, if I'm opening my ears, if I'm receptive to hear what you have to say, I'm allowing myself to experience what you're saying like I'm hearing it for the first time. There's this quality of willingness. I just call it open-mindedness. You're opening your mind and open-heartedness and opening your heart to resonate with or to feel with whatever you're observing. Uh, Suzuki Roshi is a Zen uh, master that, in Zen Buddhism, he has this wonderful phrase. He said, in the beginner's mind, or this kind of open-minded, non-preference type of place, he says, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the expert's mind, there are few. And so the beginner approaching our present experience with an open mind allows for many possibilities of how we can respond to the circumstances of our life. When we are an expert, when we already know, when I am not receptive, when I'm not listening, when I'm not open-minded and open-hearted to the experience, when I know, I, don't ha- I cut off possibilities. I want to fix it. I want to change it. I want to control it. I already know how to deal with anger. I know anger. I've seen anger. 
I'm tired of anger. Why can't I just go to figure it out so it doesn't happen anymore? So the purpose of investigating the nature of things, this is called Dhamma which higher, the investigation of Dhammas or the way things are, we, it requires that we're first open and receptive to those things, to the mind, to our emotional experience, to what's happening right now, to be open to what's happening right now, and to approach it with this new, fresh, open perspective, the beginner's mind, no expert. What is it like now? How is it now? This is how we develop insight. It's a patient, repetitive, listening, having more questions than answers process. We are in the West plagued by self-righteousness. And that's, that's a word that has some connotations to it. It's like, I'm not self-righteous. Self-righteous just means I'm right. <laughs> I'm right. I know. How many times do I say to people that are trying to tell me something, I know, I know, I know. It's like, well, what, I, why would they be explaining it to me if I didn't knew, you know? I know. So not knowing, asking the questions, being receptive. These are kind of abstract things that we have to find our way with. That's kind of the the frame that mindfulness is the foundation that the quality of receptivity, non-interfering and asking of questions in the beginner's mind is where we're coming from. And what happens is when we ask the questions... And we become curious and interested into our present experience. It will teach us already the Dharma. The Dharma just means the way things are. We know this already. So this isn't anything that for me feels very limited to the spiritual practitioners. But simply through experience... We develop wisdom. Because I have worked on cars for X amount of years, I know how to work on a car, right? And the mind and its mechanics works in the same way. If you want to know the nature of suffering in your mind, sit down and watch it. Look at it. Don't fix it. Don't change it right away. Learn about it. See what it has to say. Be open to that. And if we want to understand, this was the Buddha's big push, if we want to understand how to get ourselves out of the mess of stress and suffering that's often swimming around up here, dissatisfaction, dis-ease, discontentment, then we first have to see clearly the causes and conditions that perpetuate it. So the only way that I'm going to stop suffering is if I understand how I am suffering. Right? And we oftentimes jump. I just don't want to suffer. And it's this conundrum where I I don't want to suffer. Like one example of this is when people say let go. Let go. Surrender. Let go. Surrender. I want to fucking let go. I would like to surrender. 
That sounds like a really good idea, right? And to do that requires that I let in the suffering, that I understand the suffering, and that I see it clearly. And when I see that I'm suffering, I develop this thing called virag or dispassion, where I actually am no longer inclined to engage in that mental or physical behavior because I know it doesn't serve me because I see it. So the Buddha's dharma, he said that after his awakening, he realized how hard this is to encourage people to sit with the shit and watch the mud come to the surface and then to allow it to settle, right? And he almost actually gave up on teaching. He said, you know, no one is really going to want to let in their suffering, to embrace and to understand the ways that they are experiencing stress and suffering in their lives in order to change their relationship to this stuff. And, and he, but he had this kind of moment of clarity where he said, but there are those with little dust in their eyes. There are those that want to do the work, that are interested. Even if they don't know how, there are those that are interested in a spiritual path of practice. And I always say this when I come here because it's actually very rare. It's great because, again, the stream's growing and people come out, but not everybody is into doing this. And that the, the, I believe one of the biggest acts of generosity we can do is sitting quietly with ourselves. Mindfulness. Coming and being interested in the ways that suffering and stress manifest in our lives. Being willing to ask some of those questions. And we start with the five pound weights and we make adjustments with the easier things. And over time, you grow the empathetic muscle or the compassion muscle or whatever it may be through training. And to be on the path and to stay the path takes a tremendous amount of courage. And it takes a tremendous amount of, we talk about wise effort on the path. It's one of the factors. The word effort comes from this root of enthusiasm. So it takes courage, but it also takes, what is the definition of enthusiasm? I feel like really down. Yeah, it actually does mean that. Uh, Filled with uh, God, filled with inspiration is another way to put it. Divine inspiration. Having some faith that it's possible. That others have been on this path and that I want to stay this path. Filled with God was not the definition that I liked. (laughs) So why do we suffer? Why do we experience stress and suffering? And the Buddha lays this out in uh, what's called the uh, Vipalasa Sutta. This languaging is kind of ancient, but it's interesting. We're going to break this down for the next few minutes. So... This is his words, 25, 2600 years ago. Start saying, so these are the misperceptions that cause suffering. So there's a little bit of context needed. The ways that through not understanding things or seeing things quite right, we experience suffering. And so he starts by talking about those misperceptions. 
Sensing no change in what is actually changing. Sensing pleasure in what causes suffering. Assuming self where there is no self. Sensing the unlovely is lovely. Gone astray with these wrong views, beings misperceive with distorted minds. Bound in the bondage of self-deception, those people are far from safety. They're beings that go on wandering, going again and again from death to birth. But when in the world of darkness, Buddhas arise to make things bright, they present this profound teaching which brings suffering to an end. When those with wisdom have heard this, they recuperate their right mind. They see change in what is changing. Suffering where there's suffering. Not self in what is without self. They see The unlovely is such. By this acceptance of right view, they overcome all suffering. So these are the misperceptions, seeing what is impermanent and changing as permanent. Believing that what is not causing satisfaction in our lives is actually satisfying. And identifying with and taking personally experiences that are impersonal. That's the picture that he's painting here. These are called the three marks of existence. Dukkha, Anicca, Anatta. I'm going to break them down a little bit. Dukkha. Dukkha is a... You know, I mostly want to talk about mindfulness of dukkha, so I'm going to give a little bit of an overview, and we'll talk about working with these three. So I'll give an overview of all three of them first. Dukkha is the unsatisfactoriness that arises out of the inherent, changing, insecure, uncertain, and vulnerable nature of our very existence. So this means that basically dukkha is that you are susceptible to woundedness. Vulnerability, the Latin uh, etymology of that word means uh, susceptible to woundedness. Right, so being born into this very world means some things. It means, this is how the Buddha defines it, this is dukkha, this is the vulnerable nature of existence. This is what's unsatisfying about existence. He said, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, death is dukkha. Encountering what is not dear to you is dukkha. Separation from what is dear to you is dukkha. Not getting what you want is dukkha. So we resonate with this, right? This dharma, this really amazing truth (laughs) is very tangible. Dukkha is the susceptibility that we have by being born into this very world to woundedness. Anicca. Anicca, why are we susceptible to being wounded? Anicca is really the forerunner of all of these. Anicca means impermanence. And why is there dukkha? Why is it unsatisfying or why are we vulnerable? And that's because all things are subject to change. It's a law of existence. 
There's nothing really to hold on to as what belongs to me permanently and indefinitely. Jobs change. Our roles and relationships change. Our material possessions break down and change. From the most subatomic levels, we know that all materials are constantly changing to the most expansive macro levels of the universe is constantly expanding. Everything we know is changing. And in a changing world, in a changing existence, it creates what they call the groundless ground, that there is a groundlessness There is an ephemeral, transient, changing nature to our lives. And because things change, we can't quite predict. We don't feel safe. We cling and crave for things not to. We try to fixate and control things to be permanent, but they're not. And that creates dukkha. We try to not age. We try to put on all the wonderful creams and make sure we don't age. We dress up our dead bodies. We paint, you know, we put makeup on our dead bodies. We do whatever we can to deny death. We do whatever we can to deny aging. And the third one is anatta. Anatta. I've never understood why people want to make such a big deal out of this one, but it's uh, translated as not-self. And what this means is we suffer. We experience dukkha or dissatisfaction or stress because we take things personally. We identify with our mind, with circumstances, and with experiences that are actually impersonal. They're universal. They happen. They don't happen to you. That There's no you that you can point to as a part that it's happening to. Who am I? I'm my brain. Okay, if my brain malfunctions, am I still here? My, my personality, if something happens to my brain, my personality changes or is affected, am I still here? Am I my body? My body changes. Here, notice when you get older, you look in the mirror, you don't feel older. It's a very weird reflection to do, actually. I don't feel older. I mean, I've experienced maturity by our you know, conventional standards. I'm not quite like I used to be. That's definitely true. But who am I in here? We take so many things, we identify, and we suffer a tremendous amount, usually around our stories of ourselves. So that's one of the ways I like to put this, that I feel like is digestible for all of us, is how many times do I... Do the stories of myself take over? Of who I am and how I am and how worthy I am and how lovable I am and how good I am doing and how you know, this self gets a lot of airtime in here. And the, we can't, I can't really seem to find it. I don't know where it is. Right? We kind of have created this thing. And so mindfulness, mindfulness of dukkha. So how does mindfulness help us to deal with practicing around stress and dissatisfaction? One of the main ways, it's not the, my favorite answer, 
is one of, I believe it's the first parami, or the, they, I think they call them the perfections of Buddhist practice, is patience. So, oddly enough, by sitting with our experiences, by learning to be receptive and patient and listening and asking the questions and being open, being willing to sit with the underlying likes and dislikes of the feeling. We develop tolerance so we don't have to react out of vulnerability. When we experience fear, we can feel fear and say, oh, this is fear. I know fear. I've sat with fear. All right, welcome in. We embrace dukkha. That's the task that the Buddha asked us to practice. And it's a practice. So it's not something to buy into. Yeah, okay, I get that. I'm going to be compassionate towards all of the pain and difficulty in my life. No, it's something that we look to and aspire to practice moment to moment. So one of the ways that we do this in meditation practice is starting to practice. We have a mixture of of folks that come out, so some people that are familiar and some people that aren't with this, but we start to practice what they call the third foundation of mindfulness or mindfulness of mind mental attitudes. And so one of the ways to do this is to practice observing or noting or noticing when there's wanting or not wanting in the mind when there's craving or clinging or aversion in the mind, is to start to become aware that that's here. And that's usually an indicator that there is an opportunity to soften, an opportunity to relax. You know, when I notice in the meditation practice that I'm just waiting for him to ring the fucking bell already, right? When I notice that I want to go home and watch the new Game of Thrones before someone spoils it on Facebook, or when I notice the mind wanting for something or not wanting for something, it's an opportunity to say, oh, okay. Wanting creates lacking. So if I want something to be different and it's not different, there's the dukkha. There's the stress and suffering right there. It doesn't mean we work to actively change things to be more comfortable or to, you know. But it means that at first we want to work to, you know, unroot the causes of lack, dissatisfaction, wanting, needing, having to have. You've got tanha upadana, craving and clinging after experiences. So mindfulness, coming in, checking out, is there a wanting or not wanting part of the mind? Can I soften and relax around that? What will happen is when you experience wanting or not wanting, when you experience, and I don't mean this is a, I mean craving. I mean demanding the satisfaction of the want or the not want. I don't mean, oh, I would like to have dinner tonight, right? I would like to... Maybe watch a movie. No, it's when the mind fixates, when the mind's suffering. What we can practice is relaxing around that, quite literally softening and relaxing the body. Because the body has learned a responsiveness. It's, It's learned to get really worked up. It's learned to lean in. 
Sometimes you actually physically experience yourself kind of leaning into the next thing, right? Uh, Also reflecting. The Buddha encouraged mindfulness as a tool of contemplation, reflection. How have you consciously or unconsciously been experiencing craving, clinging, or resistance in your life recently? In what ways have you struggled to embrace the most difficult parts of your life? Recently, asking these questions, the support of wisdom, mindfulness, mindfulness of dukkha, but also the support of wisdom, the words of a wise friend, the Buddha said. So having someone, this mindfulness practice is also relational, being present with someone and bringing up the craving, clinging, and resistance. What ways have I struggled to embrace the challenging parts of my life? Um, Dukkha. We're good there with Dukkha. What about Anicca? Noting practice. One of the things that we begin to notice, especially if you go on long retreat, is... Uh, by long retreat, I mean sitting uh, two or three days plus of retreat, as you start to notice that the present moment is not a noun, it's a verb, that the present is a process full of sounds and sights and smells and tastes and thoughts. And you can start to notice this really cool insight that when I'm sitting down at the beginning of the meditation, I maybe have a, you know, you know, pissed off, I'm agitated, I'm irritable, you know, that that mind state changes. And so you start to notice that even the state of your mind, the emotions and attitudes you experience are impermanent. And so we don't have to fill or feed into all of the moving and passing states of the mind. We still do. But you can start to notice that and to note the changing nature of your sensory experience. Thoughts change, sights change, smells, tastes, feelings that these parts of our experience are constantly arising and passing. Death contemplation is another way to practice mindfulness of impermanence. Uh, To contemplate, to, to start to bring to mind in a healthy way the nature of our existence, the limited nature of our time, the uncertainty of when that time will end. And this isn't for the sake of being morbid or the sake of generating and creating a whole lot of anxiety, <laughs> but it's a practice of starting to turn more towards that truth in a way that means we may change our lives around to live with more meaning, and that we may do the work that needs to be done to free ourselves and others from suffering, to take on a livelihood that is important and valuable for us, to engage with our family and relationships in a way that's important, that impermanence is here to stay, impermanence is king, and bringing mindfulness into this area of existence is all things arise and pass. 
And the aim of the Buddha's teaching of this was not to become nihilistic. Then what matters is to become overwhelmed with this truth, but instead to encourage an urgency to then engage fully in the present, to take active delight in right now, to find contentment in the here and now, and to support the contentment of one another, the development of sukha. We hear about dukkha a lot. Sukha, contentment, happiness. You want to look for that. You want to promote that. And then lastly, uh, mindfulness of not-self, the impersonal nature So this is simple. The awareness can start to become bigger than the temporary story of ourselves that the mind is creating. So when the mind pulls up, one of my favorite teachers, a guy named Ajahn Suchito, calls it the person package. You know, the story of yourself, that's the, you know, show of the week, so to speak. When the mind pulls up the story of the self, We can start to say, oh, I know this one. I've seen this movie a lot this week. (laughs) And I'm not my thought, you know. I'm not, I am not my thought of myself, you know. Uh, Someone says, one of the Dharma teachers, I don't remember who said it, said that the story of your mother is not your mother, right? The story I have of you is not you. You are not summarized by the story. The story that I've created of you has been based on a few interactions or interactions that have affected me. We create stories based on past associations and we, those get solidified. In the mind, we know this in neuroscience, it just brings those up. It's like, oh, Noah. Okay, here's the Noah thing. You know, here's the Noah pack associations that we've got. And so the story of Noah that I have, I have a good story of Noah, But it doesn't summarize him. It's not who he is. And the story of me is not who I am. The beauty of this insight is not that we don't create stories, but we don't let our stories create us. Does that make sense? They don't have to run the show. It doesn't mean that I have no self and I just walk around as a totally, like, I don't even know, detached, like, weirdo. (laughs) it means that I become more aware of the stories that the mind tells me and I can start to write new endings to them as Brene Brown says we can start to write with active awareness we can start to write new endings to our stories most of our stories are centered in two things because of the pleasure pain thing Uh, especially with self it becomes about Place, this thing called place. So I need a place in the tribe. There's a lot of finding identity amongst others. It creates this dynamic of self and other. And Stephen Batchelor says something really beautiful about the place. He says, people are blinded to the fundamentally unpredictable and insecure nature of their existence by attachment to their place. One's place is to that to which one is most strongly bound. It is the foundation on which the entire edifice of one's identity is built. It is formed through identification with the physical location, a social position, by one's religious and political beliefs, through that instinctive convention of being a solitary ego. One's place is where one stands, 
and where one takes a stand against everything that seems to challenge what is mine. This stance is your posture vis-a-vis the world. It encompasses everything that lies on this side of the line that separates you from me. Delight in our place creates a sense of being fixed and secure in the midst of an existence that is anything but fixed and secure. Loss of your place, one fears, would mean that everything one cherishes would be overwhelmed by chaos, meaninglessness, and madness. But the Buddha said the opposite. Loss of one's place is the requirement for liberation, the embracing the groundless ground. When you are this way and I am this way and you have these beliefs, I have the, these beliefs. You know, our self creates two really strong dynamics, alibi and armor. Alibi is the rationalizing. It's the uh, part of the mind that is rationalizing my behavior. Um, you know, it's... Uh, Yeah, it's like self-justification, that part of the mind. And then there's the armor of the mind, which is the protective quality. Um, You ever have an argument with someone before you see them? You plan the argument out in your mind? This is the story of the self. It's that the self has been hurt, and so the self is coming up with a defense to protect itself. And not to get weird, but the Buddha is saying that self that you're protecting is not actually to be found. It doesn't mean you have emotions. It doesn't mean you take care. You need to take care of the situation. And you need to respond. He's saying, but the story you're creating is manufactured. So, uh, the last thing I'll say, you don't do insight meditation. This is why you'll rarely hear someone talk about Now, how do I practice Vipassana or insight meditation? Insight is uh, the natural development of creating conditions that allow it to arise. When you have good friends, friends that you're open and honest with, you create the conditions for insight to naturally arise. When you go to therapy, you you may have goals for therapy, but how do you reach those? Just creating the conditions, you pay someone, you sit down and you talk openly about yourself and the insight naturally arises. Dharma, the Buddhist teaching, is not a system and structure. It's formless. There's no way, right way, to practice the Buddha's Dharma. But instead, we use some systems and structures, we use some forms of practice and some techniques and skills skillfully to promote liberation, right? So it says, uh, Sachito said, Dharma is not systems and structures, rather the liberation that unfolds from using systems and structures skillfully. 